So Helen, here's a question I have for you. Your ideal restaurant has no music, music playing in the dining room. And if it does have music in the dining room, which kind of music is it? So today we are talking with Jen Ag, who is one of the most prominent restaurateurs in all of Canada. She's pretty cool. She runs three restaurants in Toronto, the most notable of which is The Black Hoof, a really, really hot charcuterie and wine place. And she's got like a rum bar and a jazz bar, and she's working on a project in Montreal. And she also has like one of the most explosive and absolutely no bullshit Twitter accounts in all of food media, and I'm kind of obsessed with her. The first time I ever became aware of music in restaurants was in the late 90s when, maybe it's the early 2000s, when that Nora Jones album came out. Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you remember this? Come Away With Me, her like blockbuster debut. Song was everywhere. Every, the whole album was being played start to finish in every single restaurant ever. That and the Buena Vista Social yes. Club soundtrack. Didn't even have to be a Latin restaurant. No, no. And it was like like those two albums were like just like accessibly quirky enough that every like little like arugula and raspberry vinaigrette bistro was like this this is our freaking jam we're gonna just play this on repeat for the next four years i'm also inclined to say that for a span of the 90s maybe like 93 to 97 there was some gypsy kings record that was played at like all over spanish italian french didn't matter yeah I mean, I think there's there's nothing a sort of middle of the road, not super exciting, but like modestly ambitious white people a restaurant likes more than like slightly non-white people music. Yeah. Closest you can get to like just full John Denver, but like just an edge of bongo drums or something. I feel you. I feel you. Yeah. Yeah. A little world beat or something. Yeah. But then you have places like Spotted Pig where part of the experience of going somewhere like that kind of restaurant where it's crowded and it's weird and like the food is like comfort food with a twist. Everyone who works there is disgustingly gorgeous. You want the music to be music you really like. Like it's not difficult, but it's also music you've never heard of. So you are in a complete mindset of the people who are making the decision at at this restaurant are like the people who I want making decisions. Totally. I want to learn from them. I had a weird music experience at a very good restaurant in New York called Lupolo. It's George Mendez's new restaurant, and it has this very specific theme. It is a Portuguese gastropub. It's mostly a bar, a lot of seafood. They have Portuguese beer. They have American craft beer, and it's you know they have the the blue and white tiles on the wall. It's mm-hmm. you know his Portuguese American restaurant. Soundtrack is American classic rock. I love that. That's like full dad. It's clashed to me. It created a point of tension though. Huh. But it was full dad. Yeah. It was like Bruce Springsteen and I want to say it was like the cars and stuff like that. And it was all familiar, but it kind of took me out of what I thought otherwise was a fairly unique experience, kind of a personal thing. Maybe that is really what the people behind it, the music they really love But I kind of feel it's like that's the one thing that they didn't make hyper specific about the experience. Chefs or or owners or like whoever the the sort of buck stopper is at restaurants tend to get really personally involved in the music selection. Like I was talking to a chef the other day who was telling me like he had to go home and make the playlist for the rest of the week. And I was like, dude, you own like seven restaurants. How is this a thing that is worth the amount of time that it takes? You know, like, aren't you getting paid too much? And he was like, no, this is my favorite part of my job. And part of me completely gets that. Like, of course, I totally get it. But then something happens, like your Portuguese dad rock place, where like maybe whoever's making the music choice needs someone to say no to them. Right. Like someone needs to step in and say, this is not as cool as you think it is. But old music is great in some contexts. Um, I mean, to pick another New York example, I was at Fedora the other night, which is this teeny tiny, like basement level, super neighborhoody restaurant in the West Village that's owned by a restaurant group called Little Wisco because they're all from Wisconsin and they're obsessed with Wisconsin in the Midwest. And it's like a really elevated menu. I mean, it's it's sort of your standard like hipster New American downtown New York kind of food. But the music was all completely cheesy, 
oldies, like oldies, oldies, like 50s and 60s oldies, and like Sam Cooke and the Turtles. And that was perfect. They're very good at creating the environment and, you know, something that's a little bit atmospheric. Yeah, like they were playing happy together, like, you know, like Imagine Me. And I was like, oh my God, like it was great. It was like enough of a song that I recognized it and I felt comfortable and like warm, but not so much that I felt like I had to jam out in the middle of dinner. That's awesome. And I was super into it. That seems like the thing that you want to get to, that point right there. Yeah. Last thing I'll say on this music note about old music, I was at a Motorino, an excellent pizzeria, maybe one of the best in New York City. That's it? Okay. Yeah. We're going to have to save that for a later conversation. Oh, you disagree? No, I don't disagree. But I think that like, you know, that's a bold claim to just sort of casually drop in the middle of a conversation about soundtracks. It it is though. I'm definitely convinced after I go there fairly frequently and I eat a lot of pizza, but. Are you sure this isn't just like, you know, you fall in love with someone and they suddenly become more beautiful in your eyes? No, no. I think that it really is just uh, the product is superior to most most everything else. And okay. This is a different conversation, but <laughs> but back to music. <laughs> but back to music. Uh, so I like to go and have an early meal on a Saturday, and so Motorino opens at some you know very bizarre hour, like ten thirty or eleven, and in the morning. In the morning. Great breakfast. And I pizza. went there. Yeah, pizza for breakfast. Exactly. It's the weekend. Like do whatever. You're like hungover. You of course yeah, you want whatever. pizza. Yeah, yeah. You be the rock star of your own life. You know. And so can I get that on a pillow? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we went to the pizzeria. I went with my wife. We sat down and it's like dead empty in there. And the only other people that are there are like maybe predictably uh, young parents because they get up earlier than everyone else. They want to eat like they had the same inclination. They, They were hungry. They wanted to eat, you know. Right. So it's an otherwise, you know, pretty Brooklyn kind of dining room. It's cool. It's hip. And they were just playing. The weirdest like college rock from the 90s, but not even like college rock, like top 40. Like Toad the Wet Sprocket. Yes. And like Hootie <laughs> and the Blowfish. Oh my God. And like Delamitri. And it was like, it became Holy. this. Yeah, it became this. I can't tell amusing. if this is good or bad. Well, it became this amusing thing is that we were like, what's going to be next? Is it going to be like soul coughing? And then it would be something that was exactly like that. And it was just so weird. And you kind of realize if you don't listen to that music very often again, hearing it again, it's like this blast from the past, but not necessarily a good one. You're like, ah, oh, my tastes have changed. It's weird. I thought that song was so good. <laughs> well, I think like a restaurant is one of the few opportunities in in this modern age that we have to listen to music that other people are picking for us. Yeah. You know, we listen to our own phones and our own Spotify playlists and our own Pandora tracks and like whatever it is. Like we, nobody really listens to the radio at least in New York because we don't drive and like so like I think that this idea of someone else picking all your music for you but even if you're driving even if you're in the car you pick your radio station or there's like satellite radio you can like intensely curate the musical streams that you want to listen to and when you walk into a restaurant you give up all of that autonomy and you're completely in the hands of whoever is making the soundtrack. I have not thought of Delamitri in easily 15 years and you know whoever put that together from Motorino like it's back in your life and it's back in my life and that's kind of awesome. This Maybe. Is, this is my theory about it. I don't even necessarily know if the owner Matthew Palombino was like you know what fuck it I love Delamitri I'm gonna play this in my dining room. Somebody out there loves Delamitri. Yeah, well, let's be honest. We all love Delamitri a little bit. All right. We're here with Jen Ag. Um, Jen is the Toronto-based proprietor of a number of restaurants and bars. The Black Hoof, Rum Corner, and Cocktail Bar all Right next to each other in the beautiful city of Toronto that I've never actually been to. So yeah, beautiful. <laughs> and uh, Jen is working on her autobiography right now. Memoir. Memoir. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. And a new restaurant with Win and Regine of the band The Arcade Fire. Correct. That's so, you're, you're so cool. I know, that was really, <laughs> wait. <laughs> no, oh, you. I, thought... <laughs> I mean, Greg is cool too, but like that, no. That, I got like... nothing on you, Jen. You got like three <laughs> awesome restaurants and a cool one on the way with members of one of the cooler bands that exist my and teenage aspirations are all coming true you're meeting all the musicians cool. and yeah. and you have a memoir and your memoir has the best title of any memoir i've possibly ever heard of which is i hear she's kind of a bitch i hear she's a real bitch oh my god oh, it's, it's even, even better more aggressive yeah yeah did your publisher give you any blowback with that title basically i wouldn't 
it was a deal breaker. I was like, this is what it's called or I'm not signing. Wow. um, And I think really, to be fair, my publisher, uh, Random House and um, Christian of Random House is an amazing woman. And she was into the idea of that right from the start. So it really, they didn't, they didn't object at all. And, I, and my agent was worried that they would, but they didn't. So are, are you a real bitch? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no. God, I'm lovely. Just charming. I, I think it's, a, it's obviously, it's a sort of a joke about the societal look at women who say stuff. Yeah. So, so. It's what, like an A plus title. It is. <laughs> I can also like totally picture like the blurb in like People magazine where they have to put it an asterisk in I'm for so one of the letters. I'm so anti-Grolics. That's actually what they're called is Grolics when you like fake swear. I'm so anti-Grolics. I hate it. You know what's a bummer though is that when they make it into a movie and they're going to have to put those Grolics in the title. Starring Catherine Keener. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> that's obviously, a good call. Obviously. Who's yeah. going to play you, you know? Or who's going to play you in the sitcom? <laughs> <laughs> I, I really, it's funny because my, my agent, Martha, who's a wonderful person, um, talks to me about this kind of stuff. And I'm just like, I don't know if I want anything like that. At the same time, though, when you're presented with it and somebody's saying, hey, I want to turn your life into a movie, like, how do you say no to that? I mean, I'd absolutely want control. And that's not how life works. So. I think you're in an interesting position with that because you are not a chef and chefs especially lately are so celebrity oriented and they're constantly on TV and they're constantly putting their faces out there and like, you know, there are movies always coming out about chefs and, and, you know, Eddie Wang's memoir got turned into a sitcom, Mm -hmm. but he was already a very visible public person and not that you're not visible, but you're not coming from from a celebrity chef's place. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's absolutely true. I mean, we may have tipped the scale on that one. Like, it's starting to feel like it's too far, too much inundation of, of the chef. Do you think? Yes. There's, there's too much. I do. I mean, I think it's to- the career has totally changed. And what it means and the goals that kids getting into it have and the sort of misguided notions they have about what it's like to be a cook. I think they've been completely upended by the celebrity chef. How have you seen it evolve over your time running restaurants? It's been crazy. I mean, when we opened in, God, it's been almost seven years now, um, the hoof, there was no social media. I mean, I guess there was Facebook, but I never cared about that because I was like, hey, if we didn't want to still know each other, we won't. Twitter came about probably, what, 2009, it started to hit big. That's when I joined Something, it. Yeah, that's when I just that's when I figured it hit bigs because that's when I joined it. Um, and yeah, it was totally different climate. And I mean, it's it's made the world smaller. You can, it's I mean, it's been a great benefit to me certainly. Like I would not have met Jessica Coslow of the fabulous Squirrel without Twitter. So it's it's interesting. Like I think the things that I dislike about it are also its charm. It does bring people together. It but really does. How does it how does it mess up aspiring chefs? Um. Well, okay. Now I've got to choose my words very, <laughs> very carefully. That's a very pointed question. Uh, I think the problem is, is that a lot of chefs are being given a platform from which they shouldn't be speaking about certain things. So you have people who really are overeducated about food and plates and plating and restaurants and restaurant worlds and kitchens and undereducated about a large variety of other things being sort of put in this role where they're actually speaking maybe to these other things. And yeah, perhaps they're not the right people to be doing that always. I mean, of course there are exceptions. I'm just talking generally, not all chefs. No. (laughs) And I don't think that's unique to chefs too. I think it's Mm. the case whenever you become famous or like, you know, any, there was some word for it that I read in the New York Times after the Republican candidate debate. Oh my god, that was so um, much fun to watch. But it was there's there's this the this idea that if you're really smart in one area, you assume that you're smart in everything else. So if you've been successful in business, I think they were talking about Carly Fiorina, right. and she's saying, well, my expertise like running these companies means X Y Z. Like it doesn't actually it doesn't. mean you know anything about politics or about like military strategy and and there's some fundamental psychological fallacy where you assume that like your expertise in one thing translates everywhere else which which is particularly ridiculous when your expertise is in something that is more craft than art like food Uh, yeah and i think it is it's a new thing that that food something i find perpetually interesting is that like we're at this point in food culture where it is at that tipping point and it's like starting to become mass i mean it is mass mass. everybody eats that's why it's so accessible 
I think. I mean, if you look at something like visual art, it had a huge moment in the 80s. That's great. I don't see that happening again in the same way, maybe not in our lifetime. But with food, it, everybody eats. So there's nobody saying, I don't understand that painting or what does that mean? Like they understand the food goes in mouth. Everyone likes food. Yeah, that's true. It's true. They do. They really do. Yeah. Well, there's, I mean, well, there's probably some 15 people who year old yeah. girls who maybe. All the people um, who are eating Soylent yeah. and they're like, God, it's such a chore to experience physical pleasure. How can I automate this? <laughs> Honestly, sometimes I want a pill. Sometimes I want it to be like, oh, here's my, my lunch, my breakfast and pill. Form. Somebody's really got to figure out how to make that hip and fashionable, you know, just like I'm the, shocked it hasn't the happened pill. Yet. It's like so futuristic. Soylent. Yeah. Right. Like, like or Willy Jetson. Wonka. Yeah, that thing in in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory where like you can chew gum and it's like an entire meal sliding on your, which is like gross and terrifying, but also yes. really alluring. That could be Wiley's next act, you know. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good suggestion. So Jen, were you always someone that loved food? Like growing up, were you like I want to cook and you know? Uh, it was more of a necessity. My parents are were terrible cooks, like really, really dreadful. Like my dad's idea of dinner. Um, I don't know if you guys had these sort of highliner shit of uh, fish packs and they were like rectangular cod. And so he would take it out of the freezer and put it into our toaster oven pan, dump a can of literally cream of whatever, like it was celery, maybe it was mushroom, it was cream of whatever, put that in the toaster oven. The fish would bloat up with this <laughs> cream of whatever soup. And then in an hour, he'd be like dinner. And, I, and so I learned how to cook because I didn't want to eat that shit. So... That was it. And I figured it out with baking first. That was like kind of my first. And when I was pretty young, like by 10, 11, I was baking a lot. And then I just kind of figured out the basics, like pasta and stuff that you learn as a teenager. And when I was 16, I made the brilliant decision to leave home for a year because I was just like a, a brat and not because my parents were terrible people, just because I really was just a brat. And so I really had to figure out how to cook. And one of my staples then was like stir-fried beef with mashed potatoes, and I ate that almost every day. Uh, where'd you? So where did you like get an apartment somewhere? Or? I got a I got a house on Citadel Drive, which is like less deep Scarborough, and you guys won't really understand this, but like it's just it's the suburbs. And so where I was living was just closer to downtown, which is where I wanted to be. And yeah, with three girls who were all two years older than me, and it was just a very strange year. Were you done with? Parties. Were you done with school, or were you still going? Oh, to I school? went to school, um, but I went to ACE, which was Alternative Scarborough Education. Of course, it had alternative in the name. Of course, I had to go there, and that's like the kind of place where the teachers were Carol and Tom instead of like Mr. Davis, <laughs> and you didn't really have to go to class that often. Like you could sort of show up twice a week and mostly just to smoke. So like feel your feelings about was, history and math. Exactly, and I mean somehow I I managed to go through high school bouncing between the the normal school full of normal people and ACE full of the, the cool people. Were your parents cool with that or was this like a I mean, they had no choice. break from them? Yeah. They had no choice. It was very hard on them and it would, really took a lot of mending. I When I moved home at 17, um, I moved into the basement and cut the screen out of the window and like they just, they kind of just were so happy to have me back. God, I was such an asshole. And we, we really did a lot of talking about it in my 20s and I think, it, but it, it was really hard for them. Of course, you know, they love me. What did you learn? What did you learn that year? Um, or did you not learn anything? I mean, was um, it just a... Always wear condoms. Uh, we did. We did life lesson. a good life lesson. Uh, weekday keg parties not the best thing. I mean, I I learned I learned that I loved and hated acid in equal measure. Like, I don't think kids drop acid anymore. Like, that's not a cool thing that kids do, right? I think the kids these days like they don't smoke. They don't. They just do so Molly. Boring. Yeah. Oh, and it's all Molly. I don't even. Is that, just, st- is that still like? They just like send each other Molly on Snapchat or something. <laughs> I, don't know. I mean, but like weed is totally coming back. I feel like oh, it yeah? was. It was. I mean, oh my god! Every you're from Canada. I mean, Canada has a very different relationship to drugs than the U.S. I, it I think. Does. I'm so worried because my my husband, who is a lot older than I am, but does not look it, and is the most charming person you'll maybe ever meet in your life, had never smoked weed ever. And I mean, this is only notable. I'm not really sure how to say this, but he's a black man who'd never smoked weed because racism. People just assume that, of course, you like have smoked lots of weed. Like you're a cool black dude with a beard. Like obviously you've smoked weed. Um, but he decided recently, he's like, well, when I turn 60, that's how he talks. When I turn 60, I'm going to, I maybe start, uh, start weed. And so our friend, <laughs> our friend got him a vape from here and like from New York, from New York. And we took it and obviously we can never bring it back. And he 
fucking loves it. Like he actually just enjoys it so much. And like just he uses it sort of as a tool of dealing with people at Rum Corner when he's sitting there. And he's, he's an artist. He's a painter. But he sort of watches Rum Corner and is the face of it, really. And uh, and yeah, I'm so worried. This is I'm, I'm getting to my original. I'm so worried that he's going to just like leave weed in my bag before I <laughs> come to America. I'm going to end up in one of your jails. Oh, we'll come get you. I don't know. I'll have weed. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's pretty soft drug these days in terms of law enforcement. I think, but you, know? you can still you can go still get jail. Yeah. yeah, and at the border. Ooh. Though there's there's a really fascinating sort of salutary neglect around it to even bring it back to restaurants. I think like you know, so Jeremiah Tower very famously served that weed consomme back in the seventies. He right. and sort of perfectly timed it so that it was served at, at the point in the meal where you would reach like perfect stoneness just as the dessert course was served and it like elevated the bliss of it. But there was a recent incident in New York at a restaurant that I will not name where a chef was making a special dessert and it was a cake that was frosted with weed spiked ganache. And they didn't tell anyone? I think they didn't tell anyone until it landed on the tables. And and it's if you have any experience cooking with THC, it's really hard to not that I, I do. I mean, but like, <laughs> but like, it's hard to control the concentration and the levels, and that's why you have things like Maureen Dowd writing these crazy columns where she's like, "I like lost my mind in a Denver, Colorado hotel room because I like <laughs> ate too much weed and I was like clawing at the walls and forgot who I was." But like, <laughs> if you're gonna make like a cake frosted with weed frosting, um, it, it's difficult to control it like how oh, stoned you're gonna get your guests and people were freaking out like it was way overdone we had a mushroom tea incident at a staff party once where i was like okay we're just gonna eat them from now on it's <laughs> like once you add liquid to drugs it, it's yeah it's a whole world those edibles you so know? that's yeah. not on the menu at the black huff right no no <laughs> no 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 um so what what um what's the story of the black huff like how how did that restaurant come about it's such a standard bearer for toronto's restaurant scene well, thank you that's nice to hear um so you've been there i have <laughs> no i think you have to come i will um, be there so soon really what it, it's such a i mean it feels like such a long story but it, I, I will try to make it brief it it started with with me dreaming about working in a restaurant owning a restaurant where i could go to work in jeans and converse and listen to my bloody valentine and jesus and mary chain i'm so sorry the kids that you don't know who those awesome bands are um and have an environment that was cool and cultivated to what i had sort of decided cool was as a teenager and that still hasn't left me as you can see by what i'm wearing had you um, worked in restaurants that didn't have that kind of lose at atmosphere and actually no i'd been to many of them i used to own a bar in my 20s with my with my ex-husband and um, I was like, oh, I'll get married at 20. This is a super good idea. Um, so we, as the marriage and the business fell apart, I had met Roland, who is like, as mentioned, the greatest person ever. And I was living this thing, like this life of kind of a housewife. Like he was supporting me. I didn't want to lose my house. And thank God I held on to it because we just bought it a few years ago. And he was supporting me and like really supporting me. Um, I couldn't get a job anywhere because my resume had said, you know, owned such and such a place. And I realized very quickly, that's why I couldn't get a job. Um, so eventually I changed to manager, I got a job, but I was just, I was cooking food every day. And I was sort of dreaming about this restaurant. But at the same time, I was not sure that I even wanted to do that. And which is kind of hard for me to think about, because I actually at the time was so happy just going to the market and buying shit and then cooking it and trying to get my stepson to eat my food. And I was like, I really can bake a pie. It's like, my mom's pie is better. Um, but we're totally cool now. Um, <laughs> You've solved the pie problem. <laughs> solved the pie problem. So, like, so, I, so I eventually realized I didn't like working for other people. I mean, this was not a big surprise. I kind of knew that already. And I had to figure something out. So um, it's kind of a long, complicated, convoluted story. But my, my husband and his ex-wife owned the building that the Black Hoof is currently in. It was their last financial tie. They eventually sold it and I leased the space back from the new owners. So that's kind of weird, but that's what happened. And I planned everything sort of meticulously. I knew exactly what I wanted. I was starting and good advice if you're going to like start a restaurant, start it in a place where like washrooms already exist and like you don't have to spend that much money. Basically, I think we did it for like under $70,000, which like, is don't Canadian turn, dollars, which is like nothing. It's like two bucks. <laughs> don't turn a nothing space into a restaurant space. If you can avoid it. I mean, I now know how to do that. But as a first time restaurateur, it was great. Like there's a bar. Oh, that's where the bar will go. <laughs> um, and there was no space. Like, I don't know if you have any, any, I've seen pictures, but 
the kitchen is behind the bar. It's like the smallest. It's like a walk-in closet. It's so small. And we have three dudes back there. So I, I sort of planned everything and was working on it and thinking about the space and thinking about the food. And I knew I needed a, a cook. So I, I was going to hire someone. And then I was like, why don't I just like make someone take this risk with me? Um, which I did. And perhaps that was not greatest choice ever. The partnership did not end incredibly well, but it happened and he's a great cook and there's no question about that. And I couldn't have done any of this without, you know, his input in the kitchen. So it was, it was great, but it was difficult. And now I, I'm not scared to reach out and find other chefs, which is something as a restaurateur, which is kind of, people don't talk about it very often. Um, so great. I should totally do that now. Um, where you can't cook, and you really need to rely on on the ability of cooks and chefs to do that for you. And it, it really has been gratifying to to work with people who I don't have those kind of problems with. Like Jesse, who runs the Hoof now, it's been three years. It's been amazing. And yeah, it's, I didn't, I wasn't sure I could find that. Was this a collaborative food, you know, idea? The like you and your first partner. Yeah. Like, did you decide we're gonna? This is really? what we're gonna do. I mean, we're gonna I do charcuterie, and we're I, gonna I, do. I'd had the idea to do charcuterie, and I think he probably had that idea separately. And sort of, I, I put an ad on Craigslist, and that's how we came together. And I mean, we never would have been friends in real life. We are just very, very different people. And what was his name? Uh, it's Grant. His name is Grant. Um, <laughs> I, could, I mean, it's easy information to find. Grant Van Cameron. So yeah, I mean, he's gone. He's gone on to huge success with his new places. I'm so much happier being a, a single owner. With what do you call it? Single proprietor. So I think I think it was like the best thing for both of us. There's no question. Um, but it was a great lesson. And I think if I could go back in time, I probably would have hired him. Instead. I'm really interested in this dynamic between the restaurateur who isn't a cook. And your cooks, because mm-hmm. I think frequently, I mean, certainly on the upsell, for the most part, the people we've been talking to are cooks who have become restaurateurs and and they... It's a separate thing. It is a very different thing. And they talk to us, you know, not infrequently about like the difficulties of like learning how to manage and learning how to sort of shift into a different headspace when it comes to like thinking about, you know, the the baseball team that is all of your employees and how do you keep them happy and how do you be a good manager while still staying creatively fulfilled as a cook. But you are coming at this from a very different place. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really interesting. I think it's very hard to manage people. I was just talking with someone last night about, about this and what I do. And I mean, I can open restaurants and make restaurants, I feel like, with one arm tied behind my back. I find it very easy, which is why I was saying earlier that if I sort of am identified at my death as a restaurateur, I will have woefully fucked up my 40s. It's not what I want to do forever. I mean, it's fun. I enjoy it. I love it. And I know that it's challenging. I know that it's hard for a lot of people. I'm not trying to be glib about it. But um, I get it. I'm good at it. And I want to do other things. But managing people is the most challenging thing in the world. It's so difficult. And if you're already kind of in that zone of being a chef and being a cook and so focused on that, to add to add being a restaurateur on top of that. I mean, it's, I think a lot of the time, and I mean, maybe Danny Meyer has done some work to change this, but I think a lot of the time, the art of the restaurateur, the craft of the restaurateur gets very ignored. And I mean, those, if I had, if my restaurant, the Black Hoof had opened with bright, brighter lights and quiet music, which was certainly, you know, still the trend in Toronto at that time, like the Hoof really did change that. Um, it would be a completely different story. And I mean, a lot of people would argue that. And a lot of like friends of cooks would say like, well, no, like if the food's good, the food's good. And that can be true in a certain kind of restaurant, but it's not true in a casual fine dining restaurant. The atmosphere is hugely important, gets very downplayed and underplayed. How did you learn all of that? Uh, By getting life. (laughs) (laughs) Honestly, like I don't know how to answer any differently. Like I just, I don't know. I just think you, I can walk into a, a, a restaurant and immediately feel what's wrong in there and it's very rare that i walk into a room um where food is happening and i feel like it's right can you think of anywhere that is like what what restaurants do you think are like close to perfect joe beef the joe beef group does um they are the the group in the world in my country that i am so happy to like be take you know they can be they can be better than me and it's okay they're great at it their rooms feel perfect. They're bustling. They, I mean, that's an important thing too, is like just a bustling energy, like people being in there, but the, the lighting's right. It's like just like you can just barely see. Um, have you been to any of them? Okay. Um, so Joe beef is the original one. It was, I think it just hit 10 years or is about to hit 10 years. And then Liverpool house and now Van Pepion, which is like 
I, I pretty much eat there every week. Um, I'm in Montreal every week now, so I get a hand plate and drink a lot of wine and eat all the delicious food. And it's just, they've, they've really nailed it. They've really nailed it. And I don't think I can think of a place in North America that's sort of a nighttime dining destination that does it better than they do. This is really interesting, I think, because, you know, we've talked to some people on the show and we've never talked about this exact thing. The, oh, really? The vibe. Yeah, the like, vibe is everything. It's everything. And it's it's the make it or break it you know, thing. I feel like when I talk to people sometimes, it's like the it's like the X factor, mm-hmm. you know? Do you know, that's why people don't talk about it. Because when, it's the water when you, that we swim in. Exactly. When yeah. you walk into a room and everything's right, you don't really necessarily understand why. It just feels good. There's a lot of restaurants I go to that where the food's okay, but it's that other thing that's the reason to go there, you know? And But I'm just wondering, like, what is – how do you control that? How do you put it together? What, what do you – when curating. you walk into your restaurant, what are you looking for? It's curating. So if I go in there right now on a Monday night and that happens to be the night where, where Jake, the manager, isn't there and where I'm not there necessarily for the entire service. So um, that's a true fact. Sometimes I'm not in my restaurant all the time. And, what? Um, like, like no. right now, you're in be, New York I City. I fucking earned it. Like, <laughs> I did every single service for years and years and years, and now I don't do that. But I do work every single Saturday night and do the hosting shift. Anyway, um, so when I walk in, I can feel if the lights are too bright. Like, immediately. Immediately. And I just, like, go over and very slowly lower them. There's nothing worse than you're sitting in a room and, like, the lights just, like, go down quickly because a manager was like, what the fuck, and did it. And, like, they didn't do it right. Like, you just really want the things behind the curtain to remain behind the curtain as much as possible, despite having an open kitchen. Music. I mean, music's a really big part of that. If the music is not at that, we kind of had this magic spot where the music's loud enough that it creates kind of this like little cave over every table where two people can hear each other, but nobody can really hear what they're saying. So it's like, that's exactly where I want it to be. And um, the way the room looks just in general, like it should just feel comfortable. And yeah, I don't know. You just, everything you 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 have to understand that stuff really really well and a lot of people don't are you really good at like assessing I, that that feels like the kind of skill that really is just like you're good at observing humans like yeah, yeah. what makes people happy what makes people comfortable micro expressions yeah <laughs> yeah it's like being the psychologist of a room it is like that and i i definitely i i try not to be like that when i'm dining for pleasure which i do a lot because i still despite being deeply entrenched in restaurants i still really enjoy the culture so, but I can't turn it off sometimes. Like, I just can't help myself just being like, turn the fucking music up. Like, it's too quiet in here. It feels weird. Well, it's like throwing a party, yeah, too. I think, you know, like that's that. maybe a vector in which, like, I've never opened a restaurant, but I know what it's like to have my party feel totally wrong and not quite figure out how to fix it. And it usually the right answer is, like, darker room, louder <laughs> music. It's true. And servers also. Like, don't I, I forgot about the importance that servers, the role that servers play. I, I am so careful about who I hire to the point where I think a lot of people really, really don't like me because they came in for like service dodges and it didn't. I hear she's a real bitch. I hear she's a real, exactly. <laughs> There's a whole essay about it. Um, and I don't hire them because they don't make sense. They're not, they're not a fit. They don't, they're not it getters. I don't know exactly how to put my finger on it, but I'm like really, really careful. And as a result, uh, almost no one quits. Like I finally were hiring someone at the Hoof. So if you know anyone good, that would be great. We'll move you to Toronto. Um, it's been three years since I had to hire someone and I'm dreading it because I hate, like I just hate having to go through that process with someone. I was totally blown away. And my guess is that people must mention this to you all the time, but by the Black Hoof's web- website, your homepage, how you have this really sweet profile of like every single person that works there oh thanks i'm so glad you noticed that it's um that that is a thing i feel like we did a long time ago and now i'm starting to see other people doing it and that's again why no one like people don't really talk about it because and this is a fucked up thing about the world of restaurants owners don't talk to each other about truthy things very often unless you're really really close like you go into someone's restaurant I'm totally going to come circle back. I promise. Um, You come into someone's restaurant and you're just like, I never even asked people how the night was because I actually get annoyed by that question. Um, But if you were to say to your restaurant pal, peer, how was your night? Like, oh, so busy. And it's like, well, (laughs) and then you see the servers being like, well, actually it wasn't. And it's just this sort of illusion that we have to sell each other that like everything's fine, you guys. And it's such a strange thing because people will very easily try to ignore the good things that you might do as an innovator so that they can also do those things Hmm. and not be seen as ripping you off. 
I know of, I know of this <laughs> phenomenon of which you speak. It's a thing. I'm sure it's a thing in your industry. And I mean, it's it's just, I don't know, it's a really hard thing to talk about because now I'm, I'm like watching my brain stilt my words so that I don't accidentally sound like a total asshole. Well, I've just never seen any I think it's the or, best restaurant website. Yeah, but just like, like talk We about... got to get some music on that splash page though, right? Oh, yeah. And definitely <laughs> make sure that the PDF of the menu takes forever to load. Forever. And just don't put the hours anywhere. Don't, or the no, address. You have to look for them. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be like a fun hunt. Yeah, it's a good one. I was The guys that did it are just incredible. They, um, uh, John Ty and Zach Guineas. Yes, <laughs> I did it. <laughs> Um, they're incredible, and I I'm sure that they have you know had other requests for similar looks, but they won't do that. Like they, this is ours, and they made it for us. And See, that's the kind of cool thing, though. I mean, oh yeah, I love my staff. That's what we were talking about. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, I just I just think it's really Hi, cool guys. that you you know little profile of the dishwasher and the the busser and you know. I wrote that? all those, and this is another thing, and and I, I'm just I'll try to keep this rant as like tight as possible. Um, a lot of restaurant people hire PR, hire people to to do the things on their website. Like I personally wrote those things because I wanted my voice to sound like to to come through. Um, our our wine list, I like Jake is does a really good job of like doing the voice that we kind of created about sort of the irreverent kind of descriptions about wine. Um, that we started doing a long time ago in Toronto and like now you see other people doing it. It's great. Um, it's great. Uh, so I think that when you're hiring somebody to make your playlist, which I would never do, like I obsess over the music. And I think that's why it feels the way it feels because I put my hand in everything. I'm, I guess, a little controlling. Um, <laughs> I don't know if that's coming across. Um, and I put my hands in everything and I, I, hold, I held on so tight for so long, but I eventually got a really amazing group of people out of it and like they all get a restaurant or a bar at the end of the game like that's the carrot <laughs> and I'm gonna deliver it and I mean it sincerely because they've they've they now I can do things like this and be in New York because I know that like David and Jake are holding down the restaurant and everything's great I guess you sort of preempted the question I was gonna ask which is like if you're super let's say detail oriented about everything in your restaurant how do you scale like how do you have multiple restaurants or how do you have multiple restaurants in multiple cities can I tell you in a year yeah, <laughs> like I, I, that's a great question. I don't, I don't know. And I think part of it is going to be, and this is definitely shooting myself in the foot, but I'm just so good at it at shooting myself in the foot. I mean, uh, I think part of it is going to be having to let go a little bit about like some of those things and just understanding that when I, when Agricole opens that there'll be like, there'll be certain details where yes, of course, like we're going to be there every single weekend for like six months. We're going to be in Montreal and be in Toronto, like the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday instead. And I'm no, I'm knowing that like somebody's going to be watching Toronto will be okay, but pardon me, but to build up that, to build up for the first six months, the first year, you need to kind of, you need to have, you need to be there. And after that, I'm just going to have to be like, okay, I, this person has to keep an eye on this thing that I hopefully did a good job of making a foundation at. So Agricole, you and your husband and Win and Regine. Right. From Arcade Fire. From Arcade Fire. Such a so cool really So how band. did this happen? Were they were they fans of your other restaurants? Did you go to them? Did they come to you? And I say, don't go to people. Um, no, uh -huh. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. They actually came into Rum Corner um, through Owen Pallett, who is a wonderful Canadian musician. Love him. Isn't yeah. he something? Oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, he's a real iconoclast. So good at making cool, interesting music. Um, so I have he, never heard of him, and I feel stupid. It's okay. He has another name, right? Doesn't he go under oh. like Final Fantasy? It used or to be. Wow, well done. Um, it Craig used, is in it the used loop, to be. Man. It used to be. Now he's just uh, releasing stuff as own palette, and he also plays in Arcade Fire. So that's that connection. And he's like, "Hey, you guys, you have to see this. Like, it's a Haitian restaurant. It's cool. Like, this is these are his words, um, and you have to come." And so he brought them there. I think the night before, or the night after their Toronto show last August. So less than a year ago. Um, and I was just like, I was sitting. Actually, I haven't. I haven't told this story. I was sitting in the corner, like just quietly, kind of slip like slurping on rosé because I was all period-y and I didn't feel like talking to anyone. Everyone was like, no, you like you have to come say hi to them. They are like they're here. Like come say hi. And I was like, no, like I don't want to go and say hi to rock stars. Like that feels weird and not authentic and I don't want to do it. And he's like, fuck, okay, fine. So he's like, hey Regine, Regine, come here, come here. Cause they'd already been talking all night. <laughs> so and he, he like drags Win and Regine. 
like through the restaurant, which was so like so adorable. And um, and then we ended up and I was like, oh, God, I'm being an asshole. Like, this is ridiculous. Like, I'm a huge fan. Like, this is insane. But we ended up having this great conversation um, just about the restaurant and about Haiti and Regine's uh, heritage is Haitian and Roland uh, grew up in Haiti. So it actually is not just white people opening a Haitian restaurant, you guys. Um, and because that's the criticism I've heard lobbied. And uh, lobbed, 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 both. Um, so we, we had this great time. We drank some rum. Uh, Wynn ended up um, blowing the sound system, uh, which was amazing because all of their percussionists were there. And they just picked up, like, um, glasses and spoons and, like, did this with, like, rhythm. Wow. And it was... Like, in like, the restaurant. In the restaurant. And, like, Roland and Regine were, like, singing at the top of their lungs. And it was just... Abs, I, I'm look. I'm getting like the hair. It's cold in here, but the hair is rising in my arms. Thinking about it, it was so magical. It's gonna happen every night at your new <laughs> oh, restaurant. Absolutely. Right? Oh, absolutely. That sounds like guys. the climactic scene of like a coming of age movie at art yeah. school or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was so amazing. Really, really something. And then it was so funny because this kid from the coffee shop was sitting at the bar, and I saw him like a couple weeks later, and he was like, "Oh, that was really cool. That like thing that happened there. Like those guys were actually like really good at." like music and I was like mm-hmm. that's because it was um the arcade fire and he was like oh <laughs> like it just hadn't occurred to him that this was like these were actual musicians like being talented at music so had Winnin Regine been wanting to open a restaurant and you guys sort of I think so yeah, yeah I mean that I think so they definitely had been looking at doing something in Montreal for a long time and then when they saw that they were like oh okay these these are people that understand how to or particularly me Roland would be mad at me if I even like lumped him into that category um I'm an artist um, so, oh my God. I, I really love your impression of your husband, by it, the way. When and if you ever meet him, you will understand how perfect it is. <laughs> like it's, it's really spot on. <laughs> I've been, I've been doing it for a long time. Um, so they emailed me the next day and I was working and I like kind of freaked out cause I, um, I saw Regine's name in my inbox and I showed, um, one of our servers, who's like a big fan and I, we were just kind of like, ah, like having like a sort of fan moment it was really funny and she basically was like hey so that stuff we talked about last night like maybe we should like talk more about it and so I responded something to the effect of you know like don't tease me like this is like my dream to open a restaurant in Montreal and like this could be amazing like don't joke about this and we got the ball rolling and uh, we signed a lease in I don't know January it's like it's crazy and it's gonna open really soon I really hope so yes it's um Montreal is (sighs) So much red tape and bureaucracy like for a place where like it's all strippers and fun I, it doesn't make any sense it is and every single restaurant person i've talked to is just like oh yeah welcome to montreal like that's what it's like oh also construction's really expensive here enjoy um it's fucked it's so crazy so things have like slowed i was hoping we'd be open by august um when we started this and now it's looking probably more like i don't know the fall let's say the fall yeah is, is there going to be some sort of charitable ass element to this or i know that the Win and Regine, they have some sort of connection to Haiti, right? Like in a charitable sense, or am I just making that up? Well, I mean, I always think of my restaurants as charitable because I'm giving <laughs> so much. Right. Um, I could have just I been mi- misinterpreting something I read. Um, well, Regine is involved with a phenomenal organization called Campe. Mm-hmm. And we recently went to Haiti with them. And if you're going to go to Haiti, go with rock stars. It was <laughs> like, and not in the sense of like just being taken care of. It wasn't like that at all. They just like, they know all the right people to get shit done. It was, it was incredible. We, uh, on, it was, first of all, I got to see the place that my husband came from, which is, I mean, it's a fascinating thing. Like it's, you know, a very complicated relationship with a country like Haiti when you come from there. It's, it's not a, an easy place to grow up. And so I got to see that and that was just like, again, its own thing. But we also had like packed days. And one of the days was going to, going to Campe, going to the, the, school music school hospital that they've created out of nothing that serves like 6,000 people or something I don't I hope I don't get that got that number wrong but it was just incredible and it was really like you know getting greeted by kids who had had brass instruments given to them last November and had already kind of mastered them and and there's like hundreds of kids singing and playing these instruments and kind of leading us up toward the school as we pull into this I mean the car ride was two hours of the I mean, it was like a two bra car car ride. It was crazy. Like I've never, it wasn't a road. That wasn't a road. It was like going through rivers and just all over the car for two straight hours. And then we pull up to this sort of like magical place in the, in the hills of the mountains. And it, it, I don't know, it was unbelievable. Unbelievable. So her, her organization that she, she works with is incredible and does amazing work. 
That's amazing. Well, so you you have also kind of taken on a cause of your own to do like a I forgot about that. Really, <laughs> I don't want to be an activist. I'm doing like guys. a super unslick segue here. Um, <laughs> um, you're putting together a conference called Kitchen Bitches. Yes, which is going to be in smashing Toronto. the patriarchy one plate at a time. That's the key. <laughs> is the tagline smashing the patriarchy one plate at a time, which I am a huge fan of, and um, both conceptually and specifically. And I, I, um, I think it's really thrilling. And, you know, part of why I was so excited to get to know you and to have you on the upsell is because I think you are one of the few people who's really outspoken about that aspect of restaurant life um, in I public. I like the only one, yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, talking to, to chefs, both women and men, I think, well, the good ones, at least, like the good-hearted ones, will, will without hesitation say, oh, yeah, like kitchens are awful and sexism is present and women have a complete shit time working in most restaurants. But it's very rare that someone with a platform like you, like with a big Twitter account and with a, a loud voice in your community and in the restaurant world at large, will sort of just stand up and be like, no, like, this is a huge fucking problem. Let's fix it. And that's really cool. That's not a question. No, You're I, cool. <laughs> I'm thinking, you know what I'm thinking about is I, I everything's pulsing so fast through my head about um, all of the sort of the quietness of my peers and, and then the backlash of me even daring to judge that and who am I to judge what people say and do and can't they just cook and whatever. Like it's, it's been really interesting, like fascinating to me to see this play out and people say, can't, can I just cook? I mean, I'm, I don't know. I probably yeah. like, but like that's kind of the I, attitude, I think that's the, the attitude that I feel. And I deeply feel it in my hometown where I don't have a lot of peer support in this. And I, I also went on a huge rant about that and why are people not standing up and saying, you know, and like, why are people still supporting the people that, that own this restaurant? Why would you have like a staff party at another one of the, that guy's restaurants at this point in time? It just feels tone deaf. So to rewind a little bit, the restaurant that you're talking about is one that was sued, right? Mm -hmm. It's a, a I, I think, I, I don't know. I don't want to see. There was a catalyzing event yeah, yeah. that so, basically created this whole conversation. I think I, I'm free to talk about this stuff. Um, Pretty sure that I so a pastry I know a, pas a pastry chef a pastry chef came forward Kate Burnham who is a wonderful person I'm so delighted to have gotten to know her unfortunately it's over circumstances that are awful um, and she went to the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal I think it's called and um, alleges that all of this dreadful stuff happened to her I happen to believe her um, and like sexual harassment sexual harassment I mean just really like hollandaise sauce sprayed on her hair like. As though the hollandaise not in the brunch way, come. yeah. Like, oh, that's so funny. And and the thing, okay. So let me segue just for one second. The thing about this that I think a lot of people are getting their back up about is, oh, well, you want to just like be all like lefty and take the PC, like be PC and take the fun out of kitchens. I can't ever take the fuck out of a kitchen, ever. It's the wild west. It's always going to be like that. But do we have to humiliate and embarrass people who are just trying to? prep their me's just because they maybe seem like the weakest link. And unfortunately, a lot of the times that's women. That's not to say this doesn't happen to men. It ha I've seen it happen. I've had cooks come to me in tears because of the way the chef is treating them. And, and yet there's this sort of weird master servant attachment that exists. I've got another thing no one ever talks about bet between, between, um, the chef in the kitchen where you can like really break people and they will still respect you and that's fucked up and I mean that culturally I don't understand it um and I try to to lead in a different way I mean I had to learn that lesson as well like I think I used to be a lot harder on my staff than I am now although I was never like humiliation hard on them but I saw it happen and I've seen it happen I've heard stories so I mean that's more what I'm trying to do is like yeah we can all still have fun and swear and like be dirty and gross like we're in the confines of a of a small room but like the moment that there's something that's happening where a person's being singled out for being gay for being a woman for being not a white dude for whatever you know, sorry if i missed you know my like there's for being whatever then that's a problem and i think it's really time we talked about it i think there's a big fear um and again i don't think this is exclusive to food but i think that within the food world there's a big fear of rocking the boat Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, there's, it, it's always scary to be the person who speaks up 
And it's also, I think, very hard to build up the confidence to do it in the first place and to feel confident that you are legitimately speaking truth to power as opposed to like just complaining or just being an asshole. Which is, I mean, I get that all the time. Yeah. I mean, I personally don't get scared of it. I, 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 it's my personality. I, I, I thrive on it. I enjoy, I enjoy talking about these things and, and it doesn't, the controversy doesn't really scare me. Um, but I actually just got a text right before we started from somebody because I was sort of giving him a hard time for maybe not being vocal enough over wine last night. I was just sort of texting him and being maybe a little too judgy on him. And I, I texted him this morning to say, like, I'm sorry that I was so hard on you. It's just that sometimes I feel like I'm out here on a really spindly tree with a really long branch just like hanging on by myself. And he was like, well, you are. And like, that's, I mean, that should be scary. Yeah. <laughs> but, but I don't know. It just, I, it isn't like, I want, I want to, I want, if, if, if not me, who, you know, somebody has to do this. What's confusing to me is the, the sort of intensity with which certain chefs or restaurateurs or just sort of observers and, and fans want to cling to destructive systems that's what it means for something to be a systemic problem exactly. right is that like it's not just like you personally making personal choices it's that, like there's a system that exists and we're all born into it and we grow up in it and it shapes the way we perceive things and it's like hard and difficult and shitty to change the way you see it like, it's so hard and it, i know you get it and i know <laughs> i assume you get it <laughs> Greg is a card-carrying feminist. I love it. Um, you know, and I and I, I but I also talked to, to a lot of sort of liberal 35 to 45 year old male white writers who like think they get it, who really think they are feminists, and they are simply not. Well, I think that there's been like let's say not like, all men. Like uh, not to uh <laughs> not to not to interrupt, but I feel like Please. the last twenty, thirty years of a lot of food writing and especially memoirs and stuff by chefs, you mm -hmm. know, kind of pulled the curtain back on the kitchen or whatever, established all these sort of Christian confidential, the obviously the big one. Yeah, but it's all it's all been predominantly white men talking, you know, and like I'm thinking I just read that Marco Pierre White, his autobiography. Oh my God, it's so oh, funny. White it's so, it's yeah. so yeah. funny. It's so poorly written, but it's just like, ah, you can't stop but reading it. But it's this glorification. And yeah. I mean, look, it's yeah. fun. Like, I, and none of it, like, I don't want to, this is the thing that's that's a problem too when you criticize this sort of thing is you constantly have to hedge it being like, no, 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 like, I'm really happy to like say fuck as many times as you need me to say it. But yeah. like, but like, it, it's so fun to read about these like crazy, violent, fucked up, emotionally abusive, like, totally volatile environments well the kitchen but, attracts people like that though too yeah you know? but they're not front of the house you know no well no. I, and i wonder also how much of this i mean i think that like you know society as a whole like is slowly but surely becoming more inclusive and more willing to like grant fundamental notions of humanity to like non-white men basically but it also is is I think that it's being forced that, to, like, <laughs> but I also you know that, it doesn't want to. Well, like you were saying earlier in our conversation, a different type of person is now being attracted to becoming a chef. Yes. And it used to be a very lost boys kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like you like get kicked out of school or you drop out of school or like you can't handle whatever sort of standard structure people who don't become cooks right, right, right. are able to handle. And so like the kitchen attracts this sort of pirate ship crew of people who like don't fucking care or they care, but along different vectors. And it'll always be like that, though. I think despite the fact that other kind of people are coming in with these, like, food network dreams, they don't tend to last. I mean, unless they sort of land that TV deal, you know? I mean, I'm, like, thrilled that you're writing a book. Oh, thanks. And that you're going to have this conference because maybe you can help the rest of the world understand what those lines are, you know? Born for it. Well, no, I mean, this is just this thing, like I was thinking, I like the so. past 20, 30 years, we've gotten all these, this peak behind the kitchen and mm -hmm. it's all this kind of male dominated, you know, white male dominated stuff. And now more people are attracted to the kitchen. People know more about that stuff. But now there's like, you know, there's know more. That. I just think it's going to take, hopefully it'll take time, but it's not so great that people it's, are not, 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 I don't think, not, not I, I think, I think Greg is right. I think that like, as more women enter the cooking space as more queer people enter the cooking space as more people of color start entering the cooking space and are not like ghettoized into only being allowed to cook foods of their own heritage yeah like that's a thing there will be a much more egalitarian vibe in the kitchen because it's not going to be a default that some like dude who thinks it's hilarious to squirt hollandaise come in your hair is the boss yeah
No, it's all, that's the whole point is it's all about changing, changing that culture. Like there's bylaws and laws are useless in this scenario that that has nothing to do with it. It's all about changing the culture and making people that kind of support the old regime look and feel like the dinosaurs that they are. I mean, for a long time in kitchens, it's been really cool to be a dirtbag and people are able to get away with it. I mean, nobody really wants to see my list of places that are like this because if I show you my list, there's literally nowhere left to eat. So no one really wants to see that. And I don't want to do that. I don't want to be like, don't go here. Don't go here. These people are the worst. But like, that's, that's a big part of it is like, there's going to always be that. It's going to be a big change. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. I hope so. The assholes will all die eventually. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way to look at it. Except for that one, (laughs) the immortal asshole. (laughs) From whom all assholery flows. (laughs) Anyway. Jen, we have a thing that we do to wrap up all of our episodes of the Eater Upsell. It's called the lightning round. Okay. I I am not prepared. Let's see how this That's goes. That's cool. You don't need to be prepared. <laughs> That's We're just going to ask you some questions and you tell us the first thing that comes into your head or the truth or both or not. Just say whatever you want. I'm trying to be truthy. Question number one. What is your airport advice? You're at the airport. What do you do? Stick around on my phone. That's the truth. <laughs> what do you buy? Uh, a magazine. A, like a shitty one, but not too shitty. Like nylon is what I bought oh, I, yeah. on my way here. Like they didn't have New York magazine. That's what I would have bought. It's a good airport. Very, bag. very classy taste That's in air, bought, airport like, literature. I I buy buy for shitty, like, <laughs> <laughs> only porn. I only buy porn when I fly. Can you imagine you're sitting on a plane next to somebody who's looking at porn? That's happened to me. No way. Oh, yeah. It oh, wasn't. That's amazing. I mean, you're making the like holding a magazine gesture, but it was far worse. He was watching it on his laptop and it was a video and uh, it was hardcore. And I. It's so fucked up. It was so fucked up. And I was. He was like a totally normal looking dude. It wasn't like. Those you are know, the ones you got to be creeped out by the most. Actually. And you're just like, you're not. And he's not. He's I not. I jerking off. He was not. So like he's just watching. Wa- for the plot. Oh like, Listen, I like. <laughs> I'm watching over the story, okay? I really like your generic white dude voice. <laughs> I'm presuming he was a white he dude. He was a white dude. Okay, okay. He was. Oh and my but god, like, I, it was. Yeah. Oh my god. Anyway. Um. Okay. Sorry. I, de- the, I derailed sorry. the lightning round, you guys. I'm sorry. Um. When you walk into a bar you've never been to, that almost never happens. But okay. What is the drink that you order? Um. It depends. I would. I always want like weirdo natural wine that's my first instinct is to have like a glass of white or rosé um but if i'm at a bar where that's a stupid idea i'm probably going to either go gin and tonic and i'm going to tell them how to make it or like rum and coke if they have a decent rum how do you make the gin and tonic well i mean the same way you'd make a, a rum and coke and the same way you'd make any mixed drink which is lots of booze like two ounces at a minimum tons of ice ideally like cold draft dense ice like that's actually a thing that you shouldn't be using like shitty ice that melts fast and water it wrecks your drink and then like basically two to like two to one you don't really want to put more than double the amount of booze of coke so yeah that's kind of a perfect drink you're welcome (laughs) you are on a road trip by yourself what is the music you're blasting and screaming stone roses Oh, that was easy. Stone Roses? That was really? so easy. It just, well, it's the, okay. Stone uh, Roses, Pixies, Jesus and Mary Chain would probably be like the, my, a new order or probably my Stone favorite. Stone Roses are one of my favorite bands and I nobody that. ever wants to listen to them. Because we're old. <laughs> like this is the thing. I mean, I, I still love the jingle jangle of, um, you know, that entire album really. And that's the kind of music that gets me and it like shoves me back in time to driving around in my black Volkswagen Passat when I was a teenager, which was like really the coolest car you could have as a teenager. For sure. And um and like going through the valleys of Scarborough and like actually just blasting it and singing along. Oh my God. Nick, he did he was like, I was just saying you were cool before, but now like, oh wow, you're actually kind of cool. <laughs> Craig looks really happy. <laughs> I know, like his whole face changed. And you just you never hear anybody talk about the Stone Roses anymore. Stone Roses are the best. And I've never seen them live, which is like very upsetting to me. Yeah. Have you? No, no. See, because they don't get over here. It's a thing. They don't. I didn't even know they still played any shows. I don't don't really think they do, but they should. You guys get back together, get the band back. They definitely listen to this podcast. I'm sure. Oh yeah, sure they do. Um, (laughs) If you were not a restaurateur slash memoirist slash rabble rouser, what would you be doing with your life? Oh, I don't know. Just like fucking and drinking wine. (laughs) Good money in that. There's a whole industry in that. Um, And it's not wine. It's something else. Um, No, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like, I like a lot of stuff. I really love designing my restaurants. So I think I would, but I wouldn't at all love designing someone else's restaurant. So yeah, I don't design shit, maybe. That's cool. 
Yeah, that's 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 awesome. Wait, is that it? <laughs> is there more? One more and I can't Come remember. on! I can't remember what the this last is fun. One is. This is like the funnest part. <laughs> well, Jen, thank you so much for stopping by the studio today. It was so fun, you guys. And your Twitter handle is at the Black Hooks. That's right. It's awesome. Jen is a real firebrand. Check out that Twitter account. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Jen. That was great, you guys. You're amazing. I think my hangover went away, too. That oh, was so yay. Turns oh. out the antidote to hangovers is podcast. There's a new episode every other Monday morning. If you're not already a subscriber, search your podcast app for The Eater Upsell or go to iTunes.com slash Eater Upsell. And as always, you can visit Eater.com where you can find more episodes, read transcripts, and all sorts of other cool stuff. The Eater Upsell is recorded in the Vox Media Studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan. Our producer is Maureen Giannone. Our editors are Dion Lee and Nick Friedemann. Our studio team is Will Bukema, Alex Ulrich, Mark Paradise. Our editor-in-chief is Amanda Clute. I'm Helen Rosner, and that guy is Greg Morabito. Thanks for listening.